So um, in the middle of the week, I uh, started having a cough, and um, I am just uh, now getting over it. Um, I woke up this morning and thought, oh, this is good. I don't have that itch in the back of my throat. I, I can do this. And um, at the last service, um, I was uh, midway through the prayer, and a fly flew into my mouth. And um, I, I didn't know what to do. I had to get through the prayer, and um, just reflexively, I just kind of gulped, and I swallowed the fly. And uh, I had to stop. I, like, sputtered, like, you know, I was trying to concentrate on the Lord and all that, and there was this, I just swallowed a fly, and so I, I had to stop the prayer and say, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, start over. And then when we got to the next hymn, I decided to, to run down and get a glass of water. And I, I, I ran down to the sink there at Fairview and opened one of these cupboards and uh, got the first uh, cup I could get. And I'm telling you, this cup um, tasted like the inside of King Tut's tomb. Like, it had probably been up there since the 70s. It was really dusty, and so I was uh, drinking this dusty water to, uh, to chase down this fly after having, a, uh, after having a cough. And so just all to tell you, if, if I look like I'm struggling a little bit, it's because I am, and um, if I drop dead of malaria, you'll know why. So, um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But our scripture reading <laughs> comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to 13. Now, um, from today until Easter, we're going to be reading the Gospel of Mark together um, here in church. Um, uh, I think it will be a good opportunity for us to walk through the life of Jesus together um, as we go, um, go towards Easter. And so um, we start at the very, very beginning today. Hear now the word of our Lord. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the Word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where evil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose, mi- whose misadventured piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage, to which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. So begins probably the most beloved play in the English language, Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. It's uh, the beginning, this prologue, I had to memorize in fifth grade. And in fifth grade, I didn't know what any of the words meant. But it was still easier than most things to memorize. It just kind of had this natural poetry about it. It's one of, I think, the all-time greatest beginnings to a story. In, in this prologue, you see the seed of everything that's going to happen. There's a, there's a pair of star-crossed lovers that's gonna, that they're going to take their lives. Um, there, are, there are these families, both alike in dignity. Um, it's it all going to take place in Verona. It's all set up by this prologue. Everything that's going to happen for the next two hours. It's really a wonderful beginning. It's everything you need to know. The seeds of the story are all there. Writers tell us the beginning is the hardest part. That if you can just get to page two or three or four, it's clear, smooth sailing. But that beginning is the really hard part. How does the story start? Um, I'm uh, not that familiar with Shakespeare. Um, I had trouble reading it just now. I'm more familiar uh, with the work of Charles Schultz, um, who uh, wrote The Peanut Strip. Um, And uh, and one of my favorite uh, running sort of gags, besides uh, uh, Charlie Brown going up to kick the football, that's one of my favorites. And also uh, another one of my favorites is, is Snoopy. Sitting on top of his house, his little dog house with this typewriter, um, getting ready to write his next novel. And the novel always starts the same way. It was a dark and stormy night, right? And Snoopy always starts with those opening words, and, uh, and he's going to write his novel. Um, there's, there's one strip where, uh, where Snoopy is sitting at his typewriter, and he started, it was a dark and stormy night. And Lucy comes up to him, and he says, you know what the problem with your writing is? You're not very subtle. And so Snoopy thought about this for a second. He uh, 
tore out that page, crumpled it up and threw it away, and he started again. More subtle this time. It was a sort of dark and sort of stormy night. Right? Starting is the hardest part. Because the very beginning has to have the seeds of everything. It has to have the seeds of the whole story in it. And so all the great, all the great opening lines have the seeds of the whole story in it. You think of, call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's one of my favorites. Or that good old standard, once upon a time. You hear that and you know you're in for magic and fairy tale. Chekhov's advice to writers. The great Russian writer Chekhov said, what you need to do to start your story, you need to sit down and write five pages. And then you need to throw the first four away. Because that fifth page, that's where your story needs to start. And here's what I think he means by that. You know, you spend those first four pages maybe uh, uh, setting up who the characters are, um, where it's all going to take place, um, the, the tone and the mood, and by the time you get to the fifth page, you're into the action. And, uh, and Chekhov says, just start with the action. Don't, st- don't worry about who all the characters are and where it takes place, all that stuff uh, the reader will figure out. Just start at the fifth page. And 1,800 years before Chekhov, I think Mark, the gospel writer, took that same advice. He started with the fifth page. He started right in the middle of the action. You see, on the first Sunday after Christmas, we're still thinking about um, mangers and angels and Mary taking all these things and treasuring them in her heart. And Mark's gospel doesn't start with all that. It doesn't start with setting up even who Jesus is. Jesus seems to show up out of nowhere. Mark starts on page five in the middle of the action. But here in these these first couple of paragraphs, we have the seeds of the whole story. We have all of the great themes of Mark's gospel that we're we're going to be that we're going to be uh, dealing with this year. That um, as we read the gospel of, of Mark together, that, that, that we'll begin to discover. Because all here, right in the first couple of pages. So let's look at them together really quick. Page five. It starts the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As far as first lines go, that's pretty good. Um, in ancient times, uh, you really didn't uh, you really didn't give your um, your writings titles. Um, most writings were referred to by the first line. That was the title. Um, in in Hebrew, uh, the book um, uh, the book of Genesis, what we call Genesis is uh, is called Bereshit, and Bereshit is simply, in Hebrew, in the beginning. That's what it's called. 
um, uh, sto uh, stories were called by the first couple of lines. We don't know for certain who wrote the Gospel of Mark because nowhere in the Gospel of Mark does it say, I, Mark, wrote this. Tradition has handed us has handed it down to us. I think it was this uh, man named Mark who was a traveling companion of Paul. And that's as good a guess as any. And so um, for the next couple of months, we'll be calling him Mark. But just know that this is, a, this is some guy that sat down to write for his church the story of who Jesus is. And it's all right there in the first line, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ the Son of God. It's everything you need to know, right? Jesus is the Christ. It's the word that means anointed one, Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who came to fulfill all the promises of Israel. And he's God's one and only Son. Jesus is the Son of God. And his coming is good news, not bad news. Right? That's everything you need to know. The good news begins with Jesus. It's a pretty good opening line. The seeds are all right there. But there's something else that's going on here that we might miss 2,000 years later. Imagine I had stood up and started my sermon this morning by saying, Make America great again. Or, this morning I'm going to talk about change you can believe in. Or, if I had started my sermon with, it's morning in America, right? You all would instantly recognize those phrases. You would know who said them. You would know what their ideology was. Uh, what policies that they agreed or disagreed with. You would be keyed in to those phrases. Make America great again. Change you can believe in. Mourning in America. Stronger together, right? You, you just instinctively know the flavor of those phrases. There are some phrases in this first line that, uh, that, that Mark's audience would have instinctively known. And they all have to do with the cult of emperor worship. See, in the first century, it was the official religion of Rome that you were supposed to, in addition to any other god you wanted to worship, you were supposed to worship the emperor. It began with Caesar Augustus. When Caesar Augustus rose to the throne, um, he, uh, he was democratically elected, and then he decided he was going to be uh, emperor for life. He was going to be uh, the dictator for life. And, uh, and he, declared, he declared that his ascending to the throne was the beginning of a new age. And he declared that he was the son of God and that after he died, that he was going to be exalted and he was going to become one of the gods. There's an inscription about Caesar Augustus that declares that Caesar Augustus is the beginning of the good news. Meaning this, history begins with Caesar Augustus. All the good things you have in your life 
began with Caesar Augustus. It was a cult of personality, this emperor cult. And Mark's first line flips it all upside down. It's not Caesar Augustus who is the beginning of the good news. It's Jesus who is the beginning of the good news. It is not, it is not the emperor who is the son of the gods. It is Jesus who is the only son of God. People often think that Christians were persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. They weren't persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. In Rome, you were allowed to worship however and whatever you wanted. There were, there were thousands of religions to choose from, and you could have three or four or five if you wanted to, as long as one of them was worship of the emperor. And here's what worship of the emperor looked like. Once a year, you had to pay a tribute to Caesar. It was your tax. You paid your tribute to Caesar, and there in the presence of the whole community, you pay your tribute, you would take a pinch of incense, you'd throw it into the fire, you'd extend your right hand, and you'd say, Hail Caesar. That's all that was required of you once a year. Just pay your tax, throw your pinch of incense, and say, Hail Caesar. And then you were done. Good citizens had no trouble with this. But those meddlesome Christians could not bring themselves to do it. Because you know what? Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Christ is Lord. Christ is the beginning of the good news, not Caesar. Christ is the Son of God, not Caesar. They weren't persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. They were persecuted because they refused to worship Caesar. And so Mark is writing to a church experiencing this persecution. During, uh, during uh, the 60s AD, um, when the emperor Nero was persecuting the church for not worshiping at the altar of Caesar, we're not saying that the emperor was the son of God. We're not saying that the emperor was Lord. And Mark is telling the people the good news about Jesus. The people who are being persecuted. And he's saying, whatever they tell you, it's Jesus who is the beginning of the good news. It is Jesus who is the son of God. And no earthly power will usurp his throne. And then Mark goes on. Don't just take my word for it. It was foretold in the prophets. And so Mark quotes the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. See, Mark is saying, it looks like Jesus came out of nowhere, but it was foretold. It was in the Hebrew scriptures. The prophets were saying it all along. And then he said, don't just take our words for it. There was this man named John, the baptizer. Maybe you've heard of him. And for Mark's audience, John the Baptist 
was more influential and more well-known than Jesus was. Even a Roman audience would have known who John the Baptist was. He was well-known as a prophet and a martyr, someone who had died for, for, for what he believed in. People knew and respected John the Baptist. And so Mark is saying the prophets of old foretold it and the prophets of, of today foretold it. So he's sort of baiting the hook here, right? And then finally, Jesus shows up. And this is the real story. This is the middle of the action. This is page five for Mark. Mark dispensed with all of the, uh, the angels and the birth narrative and all of this stuff because this right here is where it really begins for Mark. Jesus shows up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is where the story begins for Mark. When the Holy Spirit gets involved. You see, in the Greek, heaven is, is torn open. This isn't like, like an art. We kind of see like the, cl- the clouds are being parted. And there's like a little shaft of light coming down. And then we see a little dove and we see Jesus sort of in the water serenely and the dove is resting on him. But the Greek gives a sense of heaven being torn in two. Irreparable damage. The the curtain, the veil, the screen between you and me and God is broken forever. And the Holy Spirit comes through it. There's an irreparable breach between heaven and earth, and the Holy Spirit is flowing through it. Now, the word we have that, um, that the, the Spirit descending upon Jesus isn't quite right. A better way to state it would be that the Holy Spirit descending into Jesus. That was the exact moment that the Holy Spirit came into Jesus' heart. That's where all began for him. That's where his ministry began for him, when the Holy Spirit comes into Jesus' heart, when the veil between God and man is torn and the Holy Spirit comes into Jesus' heart. That's where it all starts. That's the beginning. That's where the action is. And so, For Mark, he's not so interested about Jesus' youth, about him getting lost and being found in the temple, about shepherds and angels and magi. For Mark, where the action begins is when the Holy Spirit comes down into Jesus' heart. And then we're told that the Holy Holy Spirit immediately sends Jesus into the wilderness that word sent isn't quite right either. The word is ekbalo, and in Greek, ekbalo means cast out or drive out. It's the word that's used whenever Jesus casts out a demon. It's about, it's about forcefully driving 
someone out. Jesus is forcefully driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to confront the devil and to overcome. See, everything's there right from the beginning, the seeds of the whole story. A kingdom that's different than the kingdoms of earth. A king who is a different kind of a king. The life of one driven by the spirit who will overcome the powers of sin and death. It's all right there from the beginning. So, why does Mark start his story the way he does? Page five in the middle of the action. I think it's because in Mark's mind, that's where our stories really begin. When the Holy Spirit gets involved. When the Holy Spirit gets involved, that's when our stories really begin. John Wesley, by all accounts, was a terrible pastor. Um, when he had just got out, out of Oxford, um, and he was an Anglican priest, and he got sent to the New World, to Savannah, Georgia, a new colony that was being started. He said, I want you to start the Anglican church in Savannah, Georgia. I want you to preach to the Native Americans, and I want you to um, preach to the settlers there. Well, he got there, and it was an unmitigated disaster for two years. Part of it was John Wesley, um, uh, who had studied at Oxford, who was an Anglican priest, came from a very high church tradition. Robes and powdered wigs. And, uh, and lots of liturgy and incense and candles and all of these, uh, all of these sort of things that were at home um, uh, in England and stodgy old cathedrals. But that the settlers there in the American frontier didn't really resonate with. And certainly the Native Americans didn't resonate with. And so John Wesley's uh, ministry just sort of languished there for two years. To make it worse, he fell in love um, uh, with a woman named Sophia Hopke. And when he fell in love with this woman, um, he didn't want to marry her because he had in mind that he was going to uh, stay celibate. Um, but he got mad when she married another man named William Williamson, and he, and he got really jealous. And he got so mad and jealous at Sophia Hopke um, that uh, he refused her communion, wouldn't let her take communion, which was a no-no. And back in those days, um, especially since Sophia Hope, Hopke's father was a very important man in the community, um, you, could, uh, you could sue over stuff like that. And so they were, uh, they were pressing a suit against John Wesley, one that he was sure not to win, and uh, so he fled back to England, tail between his legs. Now, John Wesley was a terrible pastor. But then the Holy Spirit got involved. 
It's a famous story from Methodist. John Wesley was, uh, was at a Bible study at a place called Aldersgate Street. Um, he, was, uh, he was studying the book of Romans. And he said he felt his heart become strangely warmed. He felt the spirit moving in his life for the first time. And the spirit began to change the way John did things. Instead of staying in his, uh, his robes and in the big cathedrals with the powdered wigs, he threw the wig away. Even though most paintings you see with him have the wig, he threw the wig away and he went out into the open air and, and preached in the fields where people were working. He went to the people, to where the people were, driven, following the lead of the Holy Spirit. And the Methodist movement was born. Not because John Wesley was a great preacher, but because the Holy Spirit got involved. I have a similar sort of story in my own life. Um, I first got into the ministry in college, working part-time at a church in Barberville, Kentucky, as a part-time youth and children's minister. And I did it extra, for extra pizza money, um, but also kind of in the back of my mind is sort of just a feeling out, is ministry for me? Is this right for me? And um, it became very evident very quickly that the answer was no. No, it is not right for me. This is not what I feel called to do. Um, because I very immediately began having trouble. Um, I made a lot of stupid 20-year-old mistakes and lost the confidence of some parents. Um, I had trouble uh, uh, getting along uh, with my senior pastor um, because, you know, I was in college and I knew everything. And um, I just sort of kept bumping my head against the wall. Then after about, uh, about a year and a half, maybe two years, um, I was offered the option to resign so I didn't have to be fired. And it was at that point I decided, man, one and done, um, I, uh, I gave it a good shot. Um, it turns out this is not for me. I was newly married, um, and so I got a job working at a local restaurant in the dish room, washing dishes, to put food on the table. I did this for about a year and a half. Nora Grace was born. And one morning, I decided I had to go to church. See, in the intervening time, I had kind of fallen off of going to church. We would go maybe once a month. Um, we would decide that we were going to go to church, but it was always kind of awkward because I was worshiping with the people that let me resign. And, um, and it was always just sort of, it, it just, it wasn't working in my heart and in my life. But this one morning, I woke up 
with the burning in my heart, I've got to get to church. And I, I, I woke up with this burning in my heart. The burning was in my heart, and it was not in Crystal's heart, um, because it had snowed the night before, and the roads were covered with ice. I don't even remember why, but uh, Nora Grace wasn't with us. She was with her grandparents. It was just me and Crystal and little baby Savannah um, in Crystal's belly. And we, uh, we got in the car, and we lived back in what we have in eastern Kentucky. I think y'all have them here, too. It was called a holler. And we lived back in a holler. And this is kind of one of those deals where we were tucked into the side of the mountain. And as you're winding down the mountain, um, on one side of you, you've got mountain. And on the other side of you, you've got nothing, just a whole lot of straight down. So we got on the road. We weren't even a mile. And I had this burning in my heart. I've got to get to church. I've got to get to church. We weren't even a mile. And the car started to slide. And it started to slide toward the right, toward the side. It was just straight down. And the car slid off the road. And it flipped over. And it flipped over into a ditch. And I'm telling you, if that ditch had not been there, we would have just rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled down the side of the mountain. But we flipped over into a well-placed ditch. And I remember very vividly, we both had our seatbelts on, thank God. I remember very vividly looking up at the windshield. It was covered in snow. And there are cracks all through it. I remember having this thought. Oh, so this is what the belly of a whale looks like. I don't know where that thought came from. It was like right there in that moment I knew this is the part where I'm supposed to turn around and go back the other way. This is the part where I'm supposed to repent and go back to Nineveh, right? This is what the belly of a whale looks like. By the grace of God, we were sore for a week. We were popping Tylenol for a week. By the grace of God, we got to the hospital and Savannah's heart was still beating. By the grace of God, for some reason, I can't even remember, Nora Grace, baby Nora Grace, wasn't with us. But I'm telling you, in that moment, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. That thing that had been burning inside me that morning had sent its message. And the very next week, Crystal was surfing online. And she said, there's a church in Hazard, Kentucky that needs a full-time youth minister. And I've submitted your resume. went on to be hired full-time and joined the ministry. It's not because I'm such a great guy. It's because the Holy Spirit got involved. You see, that is where our stories really begin. On page five, when the Holy Spirit gets involved, 
in your life. That's where your story really begins. You know, there's this long wind-up to that moment. There's all the past mistakes. There's all the failings. There's, uh, there's, there's the people that loved you or didn't love you. There's all that mess behind you. But where the story really begins is when the Holy Spirit gets involved in your life. So, it's New Year's Eve. It's time for resolutions. I could stand to drop a few pounds, get a little more organized. I'm sure you all have some things you could do too. But I would submit to you the most important resolution we can make together as a church, as people of God, is to let the Holy Spirit end. Let the Holy Spirit into our hearts and get involved with our lives. Maybe some of us, for the first time, this is where our story really begins. Then maybe some of us, for the first time in a little while, it's time for our story to resume. But let 2018 be the year when the Holy Spirit gets involved anew. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.